As a longtime business consultant, I view business in three big buckets, finding, getting, and doing. Finding is about marketing, getting is about selling, and doing is about the magic or the black box of business delivering and taking care of the customer. But what precedes finding, getting, and doing? I would suggest a great product. There's also a great business behind that great product. And then our conversation for today, a category. I recently finished the book, Play Bigger, and I loved it. Al Ramadan is one of the four authors of this book where they define category design and the discipline behind becoming a category design champion. Did the four writers invent this concept? No, says all four. And they are all longtime marketers, not educators, but they researched the concept and gave it a name. If you love strategy design and application, this book is the perfect starting point. It's a small mini MBA that's readable and engaging. Ah, Ramadan, co-author of Play Bigger, is coming up next here on CFO Bookshelf. I'm Mark Gandy. This is CFO Bookshelf. I love great marketing books that I can sink my teeth into and start applying quickly. Play Bigger, it's more than a marketing book. It's a strategy book, too. And its concept, its basic concept is simple. And the application of category design thinking, it's not necessarily overwhelming. So in this conversation with Al Ramadan, We'll hear what category design is, what it isn't, and a few simple pillars or disciplines that are tied to category design. When I hit the record button for this conversation, I was describing Al and his three co-authors as a band of brothers, and I assumed that all four had been marketers throughout their careers. Yes, in one form or another. So um, obviously, probably the most famous marketer amongst us is Christopher Lockhead, and he was CMO a number of times at um, public companies. I've been a CEO as well as a software engineer, as well as a CEO. Um, Dave Peterson is a multiple CMO. Um, Kevin Maney, who was the person who really helped us write this book, he was, the, if you like, the writer in that sense. Uh, he's not a marketer in that in, in, in the way you'd think of it, but he's actually a really great communicator. And so it was the combination of the sort of the four of us coming together that that it made it, brought it to life. And it was an idea that was in sort of pieces of our heads. And Kevin was brilliant enough to help us get it out and get it on paper. I think it's important to bring this to the surface because it's not like a bunch of guys just had an idea. Let's write about this. So you guys got history going back it sounds like 20 plus years. And then as y'all continue to talk, it's like, hey, we've got this idea about category design where probably all of you are either on the same sheet of music or very close. Am I kind of in the ballpark? Yes. Um, we started working together sort of early 2000s. Uh, I was at the time CMO at Macromedia, software company based in Silicon Valley, ultimately sold to Adobe for about $3.5 billion. And um, as part of that, we were going through our own, what we would now call category design journey. We didn't think of it as a category design journey because we hadn't really invented that sort of that phrase or that category. Um, but we were going through it. And Christopher Lockhead, um, was a consultant to me uh, or to Macromedia, but I was sort of, if you like, his his buyer on our side, and he had uh, Dave working for him, and so that's how we got to know each other. the The project ended. Um, Adobe bought Macromedia, and Chris and I became struck up a friendship post all of that, uh, which you know continues to last to this day. He's a, he's my adopted brother. Um, He's the brother I never wanted to have, according to him. Actually, it's not quite that at all. He's actually a phenomenal um, partner in this whole thing. Um, and that's and as part of this, what we realized was people had been doing what we now call category design for a long time. Uh, when you walk into Whole Foods, you walk down an aisle called the frozen foods aisle. 
That was created by a person. His name was Clarence Birdseye. His story's in the book. I love that story. Right? And it's an amazing story. Not only did he have to figure out how you flash froze food, which was inspired by the the Inuits, uh, the, the, the local um, natives from Canada, but he also had to figure out how was he going to wrap this food. And so he convinced DuPont to make what is the wrapping material for, for, for all frozen foods now. And then he, he also had to convince the supermarkets to put freezers in. He had to convince the railways to put freezers in their cars. I mean, it was quite the ecosystem project to bring to fore what we now think of as frozen food. So we walk down that aisle today and there's literally, you know, hundreds, perhaps even thousands of different products, everything, not just frozen food, but everything you could possibly imagine. And we just assumed that it had always been there. But the truth is, like all categories, an individual created it. And as we as we started to look at our own um, executive careers, we realized, oh, my gosh, we have been doing category design ourselves for literally the better part of two decades at the point that we were writing the book. And, of course, we were doing it together with Play Bigger, the company, for you know five or six years prior to writing the book. And so this was our, 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 our realization that, oh, my gosh, this is a discipline that others have done for many, many years. We just didn't hadn't been codified or codified and hadn't hadn't been named. And so we went about doing all of that. And that's what the Play Bigger book is about, is, is the, 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 the notion that um, we believe creation wins and that companies that go about thoughtfully creating their category um, and their solution are the ones that take, you know, a big chunk of the economic value of, of, uh, of business. And so that was it. It was it was a you know twenty year journey to get to the point of the writing the book. Uh, some of it together, some of it as individuals. You guys presumably do a lot of speaking in groups as well, where there's probably questions at the end. So as I've read your book, I read it twice, gone through it once in depth, and then a second time because just going through all my notes, and I got to wondering. I wonder what questions these guys get when they're at speaking events, I wrote down two. Just tell me if I'm in the ball, or if I'm close. Uh, blue ocean, blue ocean, the blue ocean framework, which I have an opinion about it, not criticizing it, but do you ever get people saying, well, is that kind of the same thing as category design and trying to be the king of the category? Sometimes we do. Um, we've, we've seen it a few times in, in, in our consulting world or our category design world, as we call it. The thing about blue ocean is it presumes that there's a thing called an ocean and that there's a blue one and a red one and neither one's better or one's faster or one's quicker or one's got more competition, right? Our belief is that actually someone created a category in this particular case using this analogy called the ocean, right? So somebody's already thought about what does an ocean have? What are the parts to it? What problem does it solve? Um, so in that sense, we are very different to Blue Ocean. We don't believe that it's, if you like, it's a competitive set over something that currently exists. When Clarence Birdseye invented frozen foods, he wasn't competing against frozen foods. He was all providing a different kind of food. It was called frozen, and it meant that you didn't have to either live within two miles of a farm, which was how you got your food back in those days, or eat cans of yuck, right? <laughs> Horrible food, like... And so his was just a different a different version of that. And that's the creation piece that we truly believe in. One differentiator, if you don't mind me adding to that answer, great idea, difficult to execute, whereas in Play Bigger, you could almost replace the whole concept of strategic planning with playing bigger, your concepts. I'm just saying it is. this is practical. I, I can sink my teeth into this and do something with it. So again, an opinion of differentiation. The other FAQ I have is, and you bring, you bring up the trout, uh, recent trout, I believe, uh, positioning. Do people still say, well, what's the difference between uh, playing bigger and positioning? Do you get that a lot yeah. still? N not so much, honestly. Uh, obviously, you know, we're inspired by that book you know, in the day, you know, 20 years, 30 years ago. And so, but it, again, it presumes that positioning against something, right? And so it's a mindset that you come into this thing. And we've seen lots of books written 
on positioning and the first thing they say is, well, who are your competitors and what are their features and who, what are our features and how do they, how do they look relative to, I mean, that's the immediate place that quote positioning experts go to. Um, we don't believe that's the, that's the way you should do that. Um, the, the sort of the, the analogy we use is any good salesperson knows that if you get to write the RFP, you are going to win the deal no matter what. Okay. And so our belief is, is that you quote, create the environment, you create the category, you define it with things like a blueprint, a taxonomy, a point of view. Um, and that anyone who's going to play in your field is competing against you having written the RFP. And so that's what's different about us. And we always press on different, not better uh, from a starting point, right? It's like, well, what is different about this space over here? What is, what is the problem that we're truly trying to solve? And um, so that's, that's the, that's the finesse I think in thinking about this is, is that, all of these other methodologies presume there's an existing space. Jeff Bezos didn't think of an existing space. He created a new one called what we now call online retail. Um, and just like Clarence Bird's I did back in the 1920s for frozen foods. I have watched some of your uh, presentations on YouTube. You are a great speaker. And that's why I'm glad. It's like, who do I interview of these four but after watching you a couple of times, I thought, okay, I, I want out. Th- th- this guy's really good. Again, I'm sure your co-authors are, are outstanding too. But They're all phenomenal speakers too, for sure. But you shared several stories. What would be, except for the three we've already mentioned, including Salesforce, what's a fun, cool example of category design? One of your favorites that you've mentioned maybe in one of your more recent presentations. We'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. I'll give you a couple. So one's in the book. It's, it's, a, it's a story about a company called Sensity Systems. Uh, when we first met with them, they were called Xerolux, X E R. A-L-U-X, I think what it was. And when we met with them, they said, well, yeah, we're going to put LED replacement bulbs in light poles. We're like, well, great. Why did you call us? And they said, because when you do that, you can do some other stuff. It's like, well, what's the other stuff? What's different? And it turns out that they could put sensors up there. So in addition, when they every time they replace one of these LED bulbs, they immediately could put sensors up there. Some people put video sensors. Sometimes they put... Cameras, some put CO2 sensors, motion sensors, gun sensors, you name it. And so what what happened was when when we did that, Xerolux had to go away because you're no longer a lighting company. You're a something else company, right? And in addition to that, um, you were you were going to utilize one of these remarkable resources, four billion light bulbs around the world with some of the best vantage points of humanity, full stop. And all of a sudden, you could put sensors anywhere in humanity. And so we moved the company from one of our Frodo's, as we call them in the book, from a lighting company, ultimately to a light sensory network was the category that we created for them. And instead of being bought by Philips, they got acquired by a network company called Verizon. So that's that's one very tangible example of how understanding what problem you're actually solving is. Um goes a long way and one of the fun stories of course we tell is is that you have to have a provocative point of view and our provocative point of view was don't blame them for being dumb they were built that way and then obviously there's a big picture of a light bulb and so the the light bulb that didn't have the zero the the sensitivity um sensors was a dumb pole and it was just a wasted asset that was not being utilized as well as it could be and of course that's a you know powerful 
gap, if you like, that businesses can go that go solve and then monetize. So that's one great that's one example that's in the book. A more recent one is 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 a phenomenal company that we worked in. Actually, just after we we published the book, uh, we met with the founding team from a company called Qualtrics. They're based out of Provo, Utah. And when we when we first met with them, and they're a Sequoia company, and everyone's pretty fired up, up about them, uh, and an XL company. And they said, uh, we said, well, you know, what do you do? And they said, well, we have this stuff called survey software. And we use it for market research. And we're like, okay. Um, so as we went into the category design process, one of the things that we do is we focus on, well, what's the problem? And it turns out that, you know, sort of market research measures human factors. It's like, oh, that's interesting and everything. But as Ryan Smith said, you know, the, the fastest trip to Betty in the basement is um, go, go into the CEO's office and start talking about um, market research. He's going to say, that's really important to us. Go talk to Betty and Jimmy. They're in the basement and they do that stuff. Like, so we need a different way of, calling to action the c-suite and of course as we got into it those human factors turned out to be turned that 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 they were measuring something else they were in reaction to a thing called the experience customers had them employees had them you had them of brands or products and so immediately we went to oh my gosh this is about measuring experience ultimately we called that x data was the form of that particular data and we ultimately created the category called experience management or xm as it's now known and that at the time there was three companies if you like at the starting line there was survey monkey there was um qualtrics and there was medallia those were the three big players they were all at about a billion dollars when we met them market cap for each of them and ultimately um qualtrics went public for almost 30 billion and the others are still pretty small and so it was a not only it was it was great work and inspiring. The the team at Qualtrics are phenomenal. Ryan Smith is one of the great CEOs of of, of all time. He when we met him, we said, I think I, I think I turned to Dave and said, I think he might be the next Mark Benioff. And I truly still believe that. I really do believe he's that guy. And so they did a phenomenal job. They have an incredible team underneath them. But they're two they're two sort of if you like stories. One in the book, one more recently, both exciting projects. As I was going through the book. I was, as I went back again, I was trying to capture every example that came up. And there's another one that I thought, this is cool. And I want to bring it up. Elvis. You mentioned Elvis. Right. Did, did, so is he, he? he's a category designer, right? Rock and roll. <laughs> In uh, a lot of ways, he was that, he was that guy. And, and there's a number of others too. I mean, they're fun to think about. Well, what did, you know, we talk about Muhammad Ali, a show fighter or entertainer you know, as, as another example, Jack O'Neill with these things called wetsuits that you put on to stop yourself getting cold. And you like all of these things, Les Paul with, you know, electric guitars, that was a category that didn't exist until someone created it. Les Paul was the guy who created the electric guitar. So in the same way, Elvis was the one who truly created rock and roll, a new form or a different form of music, right? And so if you start thinking about category design in that sense, it's like, holy smokes, actually, and frozen foods is an example of that. We live with this stuff, assume that it's been here forever. and that. But the truth is one individual goes about creating that new category and becomes the spokesperson for that category. And in, in rock and roll, it was Elvis. We've talked about examples. Let's back up a little bit. Give me your best and favorite definition of category design. Do it for someone who has a pea-sized brain like I do. What's your best favorite definition? Well, every product that we love exists because an entrepreneur went about creating a great product and a great company the great ones go one step further is to create the container for all of that called a category. And that's what category design is about. Just like you go about designing a product, just like you design a company, either go to market, there's also a way of designing the category. So, and it's like, if you like the, let's use the Whole Foods example. It's like going into Whole Foods. If you want to buy something, a product, the first thing you've got to do is navigate to the aisle that it's in. The aisle that it's in is a category. So it's the way our brain works, right? So your job is to create new aisles in the supermarket. I mean, literally, that's what category designer does. Uh, then you have to apply that to your particular, your particular industry. And again, you bring that up in the book. And when you mentioned the whole concept of the grocery store, it's like, okay, I got it. I, I, I get this. You've got 
you and your co-authors, you did some great research. We're going to talk about your 610 rule in just a bit. So these companies, these 30 plus companies that you studied, and again, this is my, this is my Mike Wallace intense 60 minutes uh, question for you, Alex. So I hope you can survive this question for the companies that you studied who became these Kings in their categories. Did it happen by accident or was it intentional? Is that a fair question to, to ask? It is an absolutely fair question. It's something that we asked ourselves and pushed ourselves. And the answer, of course, is it was intentional. They didn't call it category design. In fact, we were doing this work before we named it category design. Like I said, for 20 years before that, we were doing this thing. We just didn't have a name for it. And so, yes, they did. They just didn't call it category design back then. But the one thing's for sure is, to my point before, which is that every single one of those CEOs uh, of those 35, what we now call category champs, it's a more political, politically sensitive sort of uh, label than category kings. Every single one of them thought about the problem that they solved and became the evangelist for that problem. And then they created both the product, the company, and then ultimately the category itself. And so, yes, they, they, they've been doing it for centuries and, and, and the supermarkets have been around for centuries too. And they've had aisles and they've had banners above the aisle with the list of all of the categories of products that are in those aisles. That's been happening for centuries too. And so the whole point is, is we just realized, oh my gosh, this is, this is us essentially understanding what it was that people did back then and applying it to where we are today. And so we looked actually at the time, I think we looked at 5,550 companies uh, as we were writing the book, of which 35 of them became part of the study that we did, which is with, for the companies that truly went on to uh, to greatness and to create these categories. My biggest, now it's not the biggest takeaway, but you cannot talk about or have a discussion about category design without thinking about one of my big takeaways. And this will stick with me forever. It's not about being bigger. It's about being different. And that gets repeated throughout the book. And I just want to, I don't have a question. I just want to let you know, as a customer of this great material, that's stuck. And I will never forget that. Do you want to add to that? No, it is it is the 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 most important thing that you need to understand and activate in your mind when you start on one of these projects is to understand we're looking for the thing that's different. We're not faster, we're not, you know, cheaper and none of those things. We're actually looking for the the thing that's different here. And different forces of choice. Like better someone's telling a lie or you can have someone says, "Okay, Pizza with meat or without meat? So I'm now making a choice between those two things. What you're doing with different is like pizza and ice cream. It's like, well, which one do you want? It's like, uh, they're very different, right? And that's what that's the human psychology part of this is you have to make people think pizza versus ice cream, not, you know, pizza versus vegetarian pizza. That's a, that's, that's a too fine a grain for, for the way our brains work. And it's not easy to do that. Our natural inclination, as evidenced by the recent trout work and positioning and as evidenced by a bunch of these other things, the natural inclination is to go to, you know, faster, better, you know, cheaper, right? And uh, those value propositions only last for a very short period of time. And it always calls into question, well, who says it's better or who says it's cheaper, right? Different forces of choice. And that's what that's what you as a CEO, that's what you as a executive want to do is you want people to make a choice. There are in my notes, eight to 12 really big, big, big ideas in this book. The hard part was, okay, let me pick three. What am I going to focus on? You may not agree with my three, but I found these three very provocative. So it's like, I want to make sure I bring these up, but the six ten rule is brought up early in the book, it's an it's a critical idea. It's a critical concept. Explain the six ten rule. 
Yeah, as we were looking at these, you know, fifty five hundred companies, we started to think about exactly to the point, which is like, what's the point? The point is building long term value, right? And so instead of looking at, you know, what was the value of a company at at IPO, which really is a reflection of all of the work that happened before that, we said actually no, the great companies actually create value after that. So it's so it's through the lens of the, if you like, the public shareholders, like, well, that's the first chance I'm going to get, a, you know, to invest in this company. And so th- what we found was when you looked back at of those 5,500 companies, the companies that actually created value post IPO were in the age range of six to 10 years. That's why we got the the law of six to 10 and then we map that to what we call our category lifecycle curve, which goes through three very distinct phases as you as you're creating a category. There's a definition phase, there's a develop phase, which is in the middle, and then there's the dominate phase where one company goes on to take three quarters of the market cap. This is all in tech. We think it relates to others, but this is in tech. Specifically, these timelines are in tech. And the the aha for us was like, oh my gosh, these six ten these companies that go public between six and ten are actually in the developed phase of the of the of the uh, category, and that's of course where growth's going up, competitors are dropping off, so margins are increasing. So the combination of those two things are incredibly powerful for a company. So it was just one of those insights that was like, holy smokes, you know, we've discovered you know sort of the some laws of physics here, and in this case, it's category science as we call it. Again, I just, I found that so intriguing. The other, and again, this is, to me, a pillar. This book could almost be used for strategic planning, and I don't see why it couldn't be. And you bring up the three-legged stool, the product, the category, the company. If this were a visual, we'd be throwing up your visual uh, from the book. But again, the three-legged stool, it can't. we're not just talking about the category itself. We're talking about the product, and then so it has to be all three. Add to that. Yeah, it, it really does. It really does. And that was one of the again one of the unlocks for us was um, positioning in itself is generally done in a marketing department, and then it doesn't really go anywhere. Truly, it doesn't. It's 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 put up on a website, or you know, you talk to an anal- a financial analyst or an industry analyst, and you sort of show them a chart. Product organization, you go in there and show them that stuff and say, that's bullshit, mate, get out of here. Or if you go into the sales organization, like, yeah, whatever, mate, <laughs> I, I need a much better problem statement and I need to know why we're different, right? So that's that's the problem with a lot of those methodologies. They end up being bucketed in a corner. What we realized as we did category design ourselves as entrepreneurs and then more recently with Play Bigger, we've completed now 65 different category designs uh, as at today. Is, is that this is an exercise, to your point, of strategy. This is an exercise that you have to have in the room, the CEO and her, chief product officer, chief you know sales officer, chief marketing officer, financial officer. You have the entire exec team. And that's one of the most thrilling parts about, quote, my day job is, is that I get to work with these incredible teams and understand you know, their challenge. And But the process of category design, which we've laid out in the book and we've obviously further refined, since then, it takes you through a series of steps, and each one of those steps requires you to make a decision, which is a little bit different than strategy in that sense, right? It's not only the strategy un- unfolding, but it's the decisions along the way that you have to make. And it could be, in some cases, it might be a product decision. In com- some cases, it might be getting clear on exactly the language of the of the problem. It might be a a, a decision of who has the problem. And where do they fit in the hierarchy from C-level through manager, through practitioner at the bottom, right? And so that's the beautiful thing about the category design process. It forces you to do all of this work and then ultimately go and tell the rest of, tell the story through what we call the lightning strike. The POV, you mentioned point of views a few minutes ago, but again, I thought the whole concept of what is our current point of view? What is a point of view that needs to go forward? And then- giving us examples of Mark Benioff and getting into evangelization. So again, another big idea in this is the whole concept of a point of views. Every company you've studied, you found that to be the case? Yes. The great, the great ones have what we call a point of view. Uh, they may not have called it that at the time, but the way they do it is, and this is 
not a narrative technique that we've created, something that people have used for many years, is you frame the problem. You then talk about the ramifications of the problem. So if this problem exists for these people, what does it cost? So you talk the emotional piece is the is the problem. The cost is like, okay, now there's a metric or it may be a societal cost. It may be an economic cost. Frame the problem, talk about the ramifications, then provide a vision for the future and then explain outcomes, i.e. companies that have solved this problem using your thing. Those things end up being what we call the point of view. And if you look at some of the great um, uh, you know, executives, I remember sitting in the audience with Steve Jobs, and I think we tell this story in the book, uh, when he got up and he had on one side, he had the phone and on the other side, he had the laptop and he said, there's a problem. I really don't, the phone's too small. I can't really interact with it in the way I want to. And the laptop, I can't sit in front of television and kind of do stuff with that because it's just in the way. We needed a new class or a new category, as he said, a product that was ultimately the iPad. And so he was doing that in front of you. He was saying, there's the problem. The, and of course, the ramifications is you can't use them at the same time. You can't interact with them in the same way. Um, and that's a bummer. And then he had a vision for the fusion and he rolled out the iPad. And then he talked about customer examples or individual examples of how this was, you know, sort of liberating for a lot of people in the world. That narrative is called a point of view. And that's what we talk about in our book. And he gets all, he gets a lot of credit, which is worthy, but I still like the examples you gave us of Mark Benioff. I, I just thought he crushed. I mean, this is like a mini NBA of including the whole story. You know, th this little rinky dink company called Salesforce and, oh, we're going to be in the cloud. Oh, there's already a, a big organization out there, uh, legacy base. Siebel, is is that right? Yeah, and, Tom Siebel. And, and it's like Benioff, it's like he knew what, it's almost like he read your book uh, before he started this. But I, I just, again, his story, the whole concept of evangelization, getting that point of view out, again, it's, it's nothing short of spectacular. It's, it's excellent writing. Yeah, he's on. For those of you who have the book, he's on the back cover, and 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 he had some fun words to say about both the the book and as well as the strategy. And what he did so brilliantly was to your to your point, um, Mark, was he said, you know, there's this category called CRM. The problem is it just never got installed because it was software that had to be installed behind what we now think of as the firewall, and. And he went a step further, which the great category designers do, and he created a term for that problem, and he called it on-prem software, which we all use today. And on-prem software is like a cigarette; it's like that's bad, right? You don't want you you don't you're not still using on-prem software, are you? So he created this sort of sense that oh my gosh, there was a there was a a different way of doing this, and of course the way he create what he created was what we now think of as the cloud or he he was ultimately the one who ultimately created the cloud i think and um he did some crazy things he'd go to the oracle um uh, conferences and he'd, he'd stage a no software protest like he, he, just brilliant it was and it was so it was so weird because if you were a software engineer like I am, you'd look at that and say, that makes no sense because the cloud's made of software, right? But for everybody else, it was like, oh my gosh, it's forcing a decision. Ice cream, pizza, which one is it? One of my favorite writers is Steve Blank. Uh, I would love to be a student of his in any class. And I wish I could remember where he said this, but somewhere, either in a class or in a book, he said, if you have to start evangelizing your product, it's going to take you time to really get some traction. And I, I had that in the back of my mind as you were explaining Mark's story. And I, I was going to say, he figured out the whole concept of point of view evangelization. And that's just a side point for anyone that's a big uh, Steve Blank uh, fan. I want to be transparent with you on the way I sometimes read books. I definitely don't do this with fiction, but when I pick up a new book, I mean, I read over a hundred books a year. So I like to just sometimes do something different. So I picked up your book and it was right after I saw it recommended in my Amazon feed. And I thought I have not read this yet and I'm going to get it. So I read the front matter and I mean, I mean, I read everything in the front matter, including the introduction. 
Then I go to the back of the book and read the back matter. I like to read the the bibliography. If there's a table or an index, I like to scan through. And then I read the last chapter first. And I do that with a lot of management books. So I'm reading chapter 10. And all right, when I got done with chapter 10, I emailed about six people. I said, you've got to read chapter 10 of Play Bigger. So I I can't give you a better compliment to say what idiot reads the last chapter first, and then it turns out to be a gold mine. I'm going to give you the pleasure of saying high level what chapter 10 is about. It's it's great. Yeah, it 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 came as a result of questions that we were being asked, which was how do I think of myself? How do I how do I think of myself as if you like a a, a solution to something and what problem do I solve? And so what we encourage readers to do is to create a category for themselves. So what is their career arc and what does the current place that they live in, what problem do you solve inside of an organization? And there's some examples in there, but one of my favorites is the story of experience design, the the discipline that is now replacing UI design and all that. That happened in exactly the same way. So uh, myself, Mike Sundermeyer, Michael Goff, the three people who ultimately invented experience design. We were sitting in a meeting one time and there was, you know, sort of a graphic designer. There was an information architect. There was a front end developer. There was a back end developer. uh, There was, you know, sort of a, a creative artist and so on and so forth. And everyone was sort of talking to each other in slightly different ways, but they were all circling around this thing called, you know, the experience that you delivered. In this case, it was through, through a web page. And I, I remember the moment it was like, oh, my gosh, these people are all experienced designers. And everyone kind of looked at us and said, that's exactly what we are. And so is Steve Jobs. And so is you know some of these great people, in, 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 you know, over time. And that's an example. That's a very practical example of how you can, when you truly understand that it wasn't just about, you know, the graphics or it wasn't just about the interaction design or it wasn't just about how the actual you know application worked it was the combination of all of those things and so we encourage people to think about an up level if you want to think of it that way their role so that they actually become a broader and more valuable role over time and that's what chapter 10 is about i, I was gonna say i'm not even looking for a job I, I and i have more work than i can handle and i still loved it i i think anyone who's contemplating the career change i think anyone in in the consulting industry if you're trying to reinvent yourself and the questions are just so spot on. So I, I cannot compliment you enough. I'm not going to say anything more about it. You read uh, chapter 10, tell me if I'm right or wrong. I'm right. There, there's, there's one more question I've got to ask. Uh, there are going to be people listening who, well, I'm never going to be, and I'm going to go through some of my lists, bird's eye, uh, Elvis, the iPad, Vinware, Micromedia, Salesforce, uh, Tesla, Jeff Bezos, Tableau, the minivan, gr- uh, Gorilla Glass. Uh, that, by, by the way, that's a great story. Excellent example in there. But what about the basics, what I call the Warren Buffett basic industries that will never be at the top of the category? But yet I still think everybody should read this book. Every business that's profitable or trying to get to profitability and growing. This book is still for them. What could be some takeaways for them, for people who are not setting out to be at the forefront of their categories? And I don't even know if I asked that question very well. And I apologize if I'm not articulating my question very well, Al. If you like, then the the is how does this play out in a in a much more general sense? And I'll just use one example, which is, you know, Manoa Bragava, who is the founder of Five Hour Energy. Uh, those little drinks that you get when you're checking out at the convenience store or, or a supermarket. Um, if you look at the contents that in that, it, it's basically the same as a Coke, can of Coke. It's, I'm editorializing a little bit, but fundamentally, it's the same thing, right? Um, what he figured out was that it wasn't so much about the contents. It was more about the form and the form factor. 
And so the, the at the time, there was an incredible category that had formed called energy drinks. I don't remember if you remember this time back in the day, but Red Bull invented energy drinks. That's who invented it. And they've gone on to become the category king of energy drinks. And the problem that you have with, this is now Manoa talking about this, is you have to drink a whole can of this stuff. And at three o'clock in the afternoon, you might want, not want to drink a whole can of yuck. You just might want to get a mouthful to give you the same energy. And so he created a new category called energy shots. Okay. Same stuff, just different form factor. And by the way, it costs two bucks or three bucks, you know, for one of those teeny bottles and you bought it at the way, on the way out. It wasn't in the energy drink style. Different. Pizza, ice cream. Which one is it? And so that's an example of somebody who was in a very, what most people would say is a commoditized space. Coca-Cola has been fighting Pepsi for as long as, <laughs> as long as there's been civilization. Well, at least in the United States. And um, someone comes along, creates energy drink, Red Bull, huge margins. So complete revolution and different, different to Coke and different to Pepsi. Then someone else comes along, Manoa in this particular case, and creates energy shots. So it's an example of it's not so much about, if you like, the product or the com the commodity that's there. It's more about the problem you're evangelizing. And, you know, Red Bulls, you know, with wings is their whole point is you, you, you take this stuff on and you can basically fly. In Manoa's case, it was like, well, you don't have to drink a whole can of that shit. You just take one of these and you're good to go. And that's an example of, you know, what I would call a bricks and mortar kind of company doing a remarkable job. I mean, the market cap of Red Bull and, and, and I know Manoa recently donated a billion dollars to to um, to some incredible courses. And so that's my that's really my call to action for everybody on this call is you might think you're selling nuts or bolts. You might sell, you you know, you know, another example that I absolutely love is um RJ Skaringe, who's the CEO of Rivian, one of my favorite companies in the whole world right now. Uh, and I've been on the waiting list trying to get one of those cars for three and a half years now. And and it's an electric SUV. It's phenomenal. The product's phenomenal. But more importantly, if you read his website, he doesn't pitch you on the product. He doesn't pitch you and say, yeah, it's got better performance and blah, 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 and all that stuff. He says, we have a existential threat called climate change and you need to and for those of you who can, you need to change the way you consume, you know, hydrocarbons. And so that was the motivation that connected with me. I'd been looking around, by the way, for many years saying, I'm, and my son was too, by the way, saying, dude, you got to stop driving that car. You, I've got a, he has, he, my son has a, an old Tesla. And he's like, you got to find one of those yourself. My point being, that's an example of truly nuts and bolts you know, and, and creating a whole new category. And in his particular case, he calls them adventure vehicles. Um, and for those of you who are into SUVs or pickup trucks, you, you should take a look at them. They're re remarkable. But examples of somebody who's not, quote, in the tech space, really applying the same principles of category design to create, in this particular case, a new category of electric vehicle. Again, I love the book. I'm curious, can I be nosy? Is there maybe another book in you guys, are you all thinking about 2.0 with this, or do you feel like we've said all we need to say about this? We do. We do. We think we think that people want uh, more of an understanding of what it's like to be a category designer, like to to actually be the person who's the change agent or the transformational agent that's doing this quote at a company or a firm or a business or whatever, and you know. When we wrote the book, we probably had 20 of our own experiences that we could have applied to this. Now we're in the six, we play bigger in the 60s and my partners are, you know, probably, you know, tens as what, you know, tens to 20 in and of their own right. And so now we've got literally hundreds of these examples. And so um, we've done a lot of research. I think we have 35 or 40 interviews already in the can with people who actually were the category designers or the internal category designers, as we call them, the people inside the business who are actually doing this, not just the, if you like, the consultants who are on the outside or management consultants like ourselves. So yeah, it's coming. Um, it's, it's a great, it's a great deal of work and it's a great pleasure to actually go back and dust off, you know, a bunch of this work and these people. And, you know, our hope is, is that we can tell 
that story in a way that empowers others to go on and do great things as well. After I read the book, I went to LinkedIn and it's like, what title do I search for who's in charge of category design? Now, again, Mark Benioff, he was in charge of, I mean, he was self-anointed. But if I were to go to LinkedIn right now, what title would I look for to find the person who is responsible other than the chief executive officer? You could type in category designer. Um, I don't know how many there are now, but last time I did it, there's thousands of them. Um, thousands of people who self-identify as category designers. Um, and then if you click on one more button after that and say, well, what were they before? You'll find that a lot of them were product marketing is a classic kind of place where these folks come from because they've had to straddle both the product side, the sales side, and the marketing side. So they have an understanding of what we call the magic triangle in the book. They tend to be really good at that, being the internal designer, the the the, the person who's driving the process internally. Um, you might have found them as management consultants, either McKinsey or Bain or any of these places where they've learned the practice of, you know, understand, listening, being able to engage and listen with sort of executive team and break down through a stand, st- structured process. Um, chief marketing officers sometimes make it. The CEO clearly does. We've seen chief product officers take it on. We've seen chief sales officers. So it, it's fascinating to see how and where they come from. And that's a little bit of the sort of the the, the follow-up book is, is, is to really sort of track that and understand that and answer the question of, hey, I'm a product marketer. What do I need to do to become truly a category designer? Or I'm a salesperson. How could I really apply that in my in my world? Um yeah, it's it's a fascinating topic. This whole this whole evolution of, you know, categories of roles is something that just has got me, you know, really interested. We, I, Like I said, we were very much part of the experience design revolution. Now, if you type experience design or experience designers into LinkedIn, there's literally tens of thousands of people who now identify for that. Same with product designers, industrial designers. Like you start going through the list, and you realize, oh my gosh, somebody created a category of people or a role that solves a particular problem inside of their business, right? That right there in and of itself is category design. Again, the book, Play Bigger, outstanding. It's a kind of book where I would recommend find a couple other people to read it at the same time because I found myself wanting to talk about it. In fact, I did. I, I recommended it to a couple, uh, a CEO and CFO I get to meet with regularly, and they, they, they enjoyed my enthusiasm so much. They went out and bought it, and now they're being enthousi- enthusiastic about the book. So my suggestion is, if you do get it, Find someone else to read it too, because you're going to want to talk about uh, this topic. Last question, and I ask this to everybody. So I know I'm probably putting you on the spot again, but I have a feeling you're a reader. In fact, I'm, I know you're a reader. What are some of your favorite books? I have a bunch. Um, Into Thin Air by John Krakauer is one of my favorite books Love of all that. time. Great book. I think he he. Uh, more than anybody else, maybe Barbarian Days by William Finnegan's another one that's in that class where they're able to tell an adventure story in a way that truly puts you there. So that's ex- that. They're sort of examples on the business side. I really admired a lot of Jeffrey Moore's work. I, I, I was a huge fan of all of his books. Across in the Chasm, uh, the Gorilla Game actually is the one I liked the best of his work. I thought it was a spec. It came out at the wrong time for sure. You know, sort of like economically. Um. He, he he has done some he, – I think he wrote some great stuff. Um, I loved Good to Great. It was an inspiring story. The thing that kind of bummed me about it was it didn't take me to show me how to do that. It told me that there was the there was this was the outcome. If you did this and you were a spectacular leader, this would happen. But there was no, if you like, instruction manual of how to do that. And so that was one of the things that inspired us with Play Bigger to actually write at the end of every chapter. If you if you haven't read it, you'll find there's actually go do this, do your homework. And to your point about the you know sort of the discussion, one of the greatest things for us is that there's literally thousands and thousands and thousands of people designing categories without us. They're just reading the book and applying the principles. And that to us is the biggest success of the company, excuse me, of the category and the book itself is that it's empowered people to go do that. Well, again, Al, this has been an honor. I was so thrilled when you said, yes, I'll be on the show. And we even got to chat for about an hour 
uh, a few weeks earlier. And, and again, I was just so thankful. And I'd already watched a, a couple of your videos of you. I think one, you're doing a speech and another is an interview. And I thought, this guy's good. And, and, and so, I, again, I can't thank you enough for uh, being on the show. Yeah, thanks, Mark. And, and, and to all of your listeners, um, you know, we, we get requests regularly, but uh, Mark's show is something that's really, really appreciated and, and loved by many of you. And so our, our, our hats are off to all of you, and we hope to hear more about the financial community driving, you know, category design. So, Mark, thanks for the opportunity of talking to all your incredible listeners. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. Al Ramadan, one of the co-authors of Play Bigger. Again, thank you very much. Just, I could listen to him all day. I want to read a few lines from the last chapter. It's chapter 10. I brought that up near the end of the interview, category design, not just for businesses, but for us as individuals too. And again, one of the lines I have highlighted, the best way to start a category and make yourself its king or champ is to find one of those problems, concisely define it, and make sure others see it as you see it. Chances are good that others will begin to see you as the person who can solve the problem. And here's another line I really like in that chapter. And when thinking about your personal category strategy, always remember, and I'm going to pause, always remember this, different versus better. Different versus better. When you seek better, you're moving into someone else's territory, always fighting for attention and having to prove that you are better. When two people say, I'm the best, One of them is lying. And when you seek different, you aren't climbing someone else's ladder. You're building your own ladder and putting yourself on the top rung. Again, chapter 10, great. But again, the entire book is excellent. Guys, we need to call this a wrap. I'm Mark Gandy. This is CFO Bookshelf. (music) 